This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. Veteran anti-fascist researcher Spencer Sunshine has been keeping tabs on the radical right for decades. His work has appeared in the Daily Beast, Salon, Truth Out, and the Jerusalem Post, among others. Sunshine is a prolific writer, with many published titles and two brand new books coming out in 2024. I'm thrilled to get a chance to talk to him. Stick around. Spencer, thanks for coming on. Welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you ended up doing this kind of work? Sure. It's a bit of a funny story. As we're chatting before the show, I was uh, involved in the punk rock scene for a long time, starting in the late 80s. And Mm. I grew up in Atlanta. That whole scene was dominated by Nazi skinheads. Right. Like, this was before Nirvana and bands got signed. So you'd go to a show and there'd be like a thousand people at it. And there'd be like 50 roided up skinheads in the middle of the pit, intimidating the whole crowd. And there were numerous, numerous uh, neo-Nazi groups and clan groups, both skins and older, older people at the time. It was sort of like one of the heights of this Nazi and really violent Nazi and clan revival that started in the late seventies. So I ended up um, hooking up with a group of older, although they're younger than I am now, <laughs> anti-fascists who um, we would call them anti-fascists today, who'd formed a, a public community based group. And then they kind of put me together with some other teenagers in the punk rock scene. And we actually formed a group that then was called an anti-racist group, but now it'd be called an anti-fascist group. Right, right. Fast forward a long time. I think in the mid aughts, I became very interested in two things. One, we found cross-recruiting by a crypto-fascist group called the National Anarchists. Ooh, who were recruiting amongst anarchists, left anarchists, and radical ecologists. They had recruited one guy who had been an editorial member of the Eugene-based Green Anarchy magazine that John Zerzan was involved in. Right. And also at the same time, there was like a lot of anti-Semitism around the Second Antifada amongst Western supporters, and we became very interested in this. And so in 2008, I wrote a long article that did really well, was translated into several languages for a think tank that I ended up being associated with, which will not be named. <laughs> and then over the years, I just wrote more and more stuff. So when Trump happened, uh, there became just an explosion. And I was one of the few people who had been really paying close attention to this stuff over the years, because it kind of bought the far right bottomed out in the US after 9-11. And really, there was a bit of a bulb around 08 when Obama was elected. And there was, you know, the Tea Party and a new wave of militia groups, but it didn't really take off till 14, 15, when it had this meteor like rise. And so I've been, you know, really involved in different stuff and counter organizing and writing and researching and putting kind of think pieces and writing a few books now since then. That's actually really fascinating that you bring up the entire like national anarchist thing. That was a, a really interesting little phenomenon that happened right about that time. It was like, this is going to sound crazy to those of you who are listening who haven't researched this a little bit, but like essentially like anarchists, but racist. They wanted their own sort of anarchist ethno state to happen, which seems a little crazy, but they actually had quite a bit of luck with recruiting for a short period of time there. You wrote extensively about that. Can you talk a little more about these groups and their sort of rise and fall, as it were? How did this how did this kind of come up and how did this kind of drop off a little bit? Sure. They were kind of a fascinating group. I wrote an article in 2008 called uh, Rebranding Fascism National Anarchists, which you can find online in several places. So as I said, there was a real um, bottoming out for a lot of these, you know, the far right, including the neo-Nazi movement and the Klan. The the Klan has gone down and down and down. There's there's only about a dozen groups now. So in this time in which the format they developed in the 80s and 90s was sort of worn out and there wasn't a lot of energy, there were a lot of weird. So some of the older, some of the people involved in this prior wave were, were trying to rethink what they were doing and create a different way forward. And some of them had come out of a, a part of fascism called third positionism, okay. which is a, a anti-capitalist form of fascism. 
that sometimes is involved in radical ecology and even animal rights, but also uh, concentrates on ethnic separatism, racial separatism. So they want to work with other racial separatists, with black nationalists, and uh, sometimes with other regionalist groups, regional breakoff groups. So one guy who had been involved in the, a, a British group that was briefly very popular called the National Front, he was in the third positionist faction. And then as the years went on, he became an ultra decentralist. So his idea was that there would be racially separate villages, hence the anarchism. Right. He originally started working with an anarchist, radical ecologist from one of the, there were many magazines called Green Anarchy. So it was one of the guys in Green Anarchy. Of course, uh, this guy, the National Anarchist leader, his name is Troy Southgate. He's still mm. around. He publishes books and stuff. You know, he was a Holocaust denier, and he had a bunch of the other sort of standard racist talking points. But because of this ultra decentralism, you know, he went to left anarchists and was like, hey, you're against the system too. You know, you want a decentralized system and you want it to be voluntary. Well, we're totally for that, and we voluntarily want an all white area. So this is like the white ethno state reduced onto a village level. Right. That evolved too. He embraced any kind of decentralization. It wasn't just racial decentralization. So he ended up working with a guy named Keith Preston, who has a, a his project is Attack the System. And Keith somehow also got a toehold in some libertarian circles. Um, and, and Attack the System even recruited a guy who's Native American. They, they've tried to get, again, their claws. And they try to get their claws into every little piece. Um, it was sort of a fascinating thing. They recruited a couple groups in the U.S., uh, one in San Francisco called Banna, and one in New York City called NADA, the National Anarchist Tribal Alliance. They were they participated in Occupy Wall Street and were not kicked out of it. Right. And some of the members of that group are still around. One was arrested for 1-6, and one guy is active in these uh, militia groups in New Mexico. So it had a – I mean, it was more interesting than it gained a lot of traction, you know, we were, uh, especially because I wrote these articles, successful in making sure that people kick them out of anarchist and radical ecological spaces. Right. Because there always is some attrition. Like there were several people in the Earth Liberation Front who became fascists, right? And, you know, the eco-fascists are always trying to get other ecologists to join them. So this is a constant problem. I mean, today there's a lot more interest in red-brown groups. And this is just one of the different forms of red-brown groups. So I think people need to be conscious about it. Some of it was a rethinking or a thinking of, you know, what it meant to just talk about voluntary decentralization and what decentralization would really mean. Because I think some people, if they're not left wing about it and they're really just into the decentralization, there's a history of them floating into the right or making alliances with the right. And this has happened different times in history. Right, right. And you mentioned Occupy. Mm -hmm. And one of the most critical things you've written, in my opinion anyway, is a piece called The Right Hand of Occupy, where you talk about some of the right-wing actors who latched onto the Occupy movements and some of the ideas that they were able to inject into the more mainstream discourse as a result. And it really seems like looking back, a lot of people have forgotten about people like Ron Paul and Tom Metzger being big promoters of Occupy at the time. Would you say being ignorant of this history increases the odds of success for right-wing entryists in these kinds of movements that come up in the future? Well, I mean, of course it does. People need to be aware of the far right, its presence, and its desire to cross-recruit and engage in entryism when they're in mass movements in order to kick them out and to keep the integrity of their movement. And the presence of these far right actors makes this, especially of anti-Semites, for example, makes it a rich and deserved target for, you know, more standard right-wing conservatives to act against it. Like there was a lot of outlandish articles published by conservatives about Occupy Wall Street mm -hmm. that really did have a grain of truth, you know, and they did make some points. And people were like, oh, because people on the left, the dominant attitude is always like, oh, it's just a smear. But there really are problems with this. And, and sometimes these guys do hit the nail on the head. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you take action against them and you remove them, the amount of problems you have are a lot less. And the amount of, of traction conservatives can get against your movement are a lot less. So, you know, people do need, they don't need to be an overwhelming thing, but they just need to be aware of this and need to be aware of what kind of issues and what kind of movements, because it's not all of them, that the, the far right will try to get its claws into. I mean, we even saw with Black Lives Matter, I mean, white supremacists weren't interested, but the, the Boogaloo boys were. Oh, absolutely. Even all the way to like Ammon Bundy, he was he was a fan of that movement, and 
he had some he had some interest in it, yeah. But you know, people always try to to um, elbow into any kind of mass movement, like any kind of mass movement. People try to elbow into. So you know, you have to be aware of that, and you have to you know just create a firewall against them. Have your politics in order, uh, and be sure uh, not to get in some big fight about whether they can be there or not, or free speech. Just like kick them out. You have to be, and you have to be ready. You have mm-hmm. to know what you're looking for, see them, and then kick them out. That's it. Right. And they will play the free speech card because they always do. That's their biggest tactic, but it's like, mm, no, sorry. Yeah. I mean, and that's a one way thing. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they want, uh, they want room for them, but not you. Yeah, exactly. So one of your projects that you've got coming up is a book about James Mason, the neo-Nazi leader from way back and his influence. And can you talk a little bit about why James Mason became relevant again a few years ago and his influence? Sure. Mason was a really kind of obscure figure. He's a neo-Nazi terrorist ideologue. Um, and in his book, Siege, which is actually a um, edited anthology of uh, newsletters he published in the early and mid 80s, he advocates like uh, Nazi, neo-Nazi terrorism, but also any kind, almost any kind of like militant action by any faction, including the left and racial nationalists, serial killers, anything that will disrupt the society. So like serial killers and like mass shootings. And then he infamously advocated that Charles Manson should be the new neo-Nazi guru. Right. Manson's kind of overlooked, but he was like super racist, super duper anti-Semitic, you know, was totally cool with white supremacists. At one point had an alliance with the Aryan Brotherhood. You know, I think people dismiss this stuff, but there's a an archive with with Mason's letters. There's it's like a six inch folder with all of his letters to Charles Manson. Didn't he and Charles Manson work together on a belief system at one point? Wasn't that what Universal Order was? So Universal Order was a was Mason's belief system, but it was him taking Charles Manson's ideas about like going to Death Valley and letting you know the uh, helter skelter happen and then coming out you know and becoming the the dominant white group. And some other ideas about um, Manson, this is often overlooked, but was a kind of dualistic Gnostic. Right. And so uh, Mason tried to incorporate some of these ideas in a neo-Nazi framework. This is the basis of universal order. Um, So that's what they did. It was something that that Mason did about Manson's ideas. I don't know how much Manson actually guided him or not. Uh, The the truth is, is Charles Manson's handwriting is so terrible. I did not have time (laughs) Five years working on this book, but I just could not decipher his handwriting. There were too many letters, so I don't know how much how much he guided that influence. At some point, Manson got tired of Mason after about three or four years, and you know realized that Mason wasn't going to like be a, a, a complete devotee in the family, like right. he had his own ideas. So they, Charles Manson kind of got rid of Mason or, or cut him off. They did actually remain in touch for a few more years. So yeah, there is actually a strong influence there that's quite overlooked. So Mason was sort of an obscure figure for a number of years. And then you mentioned that he kind of got rediscovered in the eighties with guys like Boyd Rice figuring out who he was. Yeah. In the mid eighties, his newsletter ran from 80 to 86. And in 86, Boyd Rice rediscovered him. He's an industrial musician, quite well known, started this stuff in the 70s, was influenced by Genesis Bjorge of Throbbing Gristle, who also had a fetish about Charles Manson and Adolf Hitler. Rice heard about, through gun shows, that there was a neo-Nazi who was in touch with Charles Manson and so also had this Manson-Hitler thing going on. Uh, Rice contacted him and then also got a number of other people in contact with him, most importantly, Adam Parfrey of Feral House Press, and then Michael Moynihan, who uh, has a neo-folk band called Blood Axis, and Moynihan became the one who took all of Mason's letters, edited them, and he uh, Moynihan sub, uh, self-published them on his press uh, called Storm, and that's the first edition of Siege, which came out in 1993. So these guys, along with Nicholas Schreck, uh, who was married to Anton LaVey's daughter, uh, Zena LaVey, and other members of the Church of Satan, including the current leader, Peter Gilmore, all helped to uh, take uh, James Mason's ideas to sort of inject them into the, the crazy underground culture scene of the 80s and 90s, and then ultimately it resulted in siege. And you know, this is actually funny because it's quite public. If you look at books like Feral House's Apocalypse Culture, you right. see Mason stuff in there. If you look at the Manson file, and, and these books are still in print uh, by Nick that Nicholas Schreck edited, you'll also see like quite a bit of Mason stuff in there. So this wasn't hidden. 
No. Although people have kind of overlooked it. It's mentioned in passing, but these guys all played a key role in the discovery and the dissemination of Mason's ideas. So his book, I mean, I can shoot ahead, was reissued in 2003 by this Montana press. And then kind of had a slow burn. Neo-Nazis knew of it. It was a little infamous in the music scene because um, Moynihan was touring all the time and he had put the book out and Moynihan was always denying he was a neo-Nazi. Same thing with Boyd Rice. Right. And then it became rediscovered around 2015 by people on this website called Iron March. It was the site that was the incubator for a number of neo-Nazi terrorist groups like National Action, in Britain, which is now a band group, but in America, the Atomwaffen Division came out of this and some other groups like this too. The guy who ran it, Iron March in 2015, reissued Siege in a third edition. And this is what became like the Bible, even a former Atomwaffen movement member called it the Bible of their group. Right. And so it's become incredibly important. A lot of the things that Mason developed that were very unpopular in the 80s are very current now. You know, this fetishization of serial killers. The sort of edgelord approach, Mason was into um, pornography and uh, got arrested for taking pictures of like 15, 16 year olds. So this sort of goes along with a lot of this extreme, you know, there's a lot of child porn that floats around. It goes along with this. Oh, yeah. You know, and Mason loved to have his whole shtick was like have an outrageous idea that would attract people to the idea to Charles Manson and they could recruit from them. This was an older idea from the American Nazi Party, which Mason had been in in the 60s as a kid. And so you see the same thing now with a lot of this like crazy, you know, the edgelordy stuff and 4chan and other places are just going to put out this outrageous stuff and people like the outrageous stuff and it's ironic. And then they they draw some of them into the pool of actual ideological, you know, neo-Nazism and white supremacy. So a lot of the ideas he set up then and a close tie with the cultural workers. So ideas he set up then became very current when people rediscovered him. And then they Mason ended up being like a mentor to these these people. He lives in Denver and they go to there's all these pictures of like Adam Waffen members and such right. going to his house and, right. and talking to him and taking pictures with him. It also seems like there's a number of these guys that are floating around. Um we just actually had Amanda Rogers on the program not too long ago and she talked about how one of the other people that the Adam Waffen guys talked to when they were getting set up was uh, Tom Metzger from White Aryan Resistance down in Fallbrook, California. And Metzger's a guy who was very prominent in the 80s, kind of fell off a little bit in terms of mainstream visibility, but his theories and his attitudes about how this stuff should work kind of outlived him by a number of years. We also saw a guy named Ronaldo Nazaro who ran a group called The Base that was active for a while, and he tried to make contact with another older white supremacist by the name of Harold Covington right before Covington died. Mm -hmm. Are there a lot of these guys that we still know of kind of floating around offering this kind of advice to these young guys? Not so many. I mean, Metzger died in, um, I think he died election night 2020, actually. He was surprisingly not as popular as you would have thought amongst the alt-right, but he did have a revolutionary approach. He worked very closely with Mason. He was Mason's closest ally and promoter. There's an interview with Metzger in 1993 on a, a national TV show, um, McLaughlin Report. He holds up a copy of Siege, actually. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Covington was one of the few ones who actually had a kind of closer connection with the alt-right era, you know, younger uh, white supremacists. Right. He, he, of course, passed away, too. A lot of these guys passed away, though, like Aryan Nations, uh, Richard Butler had passed away, William Pierce had passed away. So there's limited connection. And for a lot of them, they pushed against having a connection. You know, the thing of the alt-right was like a real break from the previous white supremacist movement and you know they called it white nationalism a 1.0 right and they right. were like 2.0 so th there was also a hostility to them you know like a lot of a lot of the younger people don't look younger now probably late 20s and 30s just like stormfront the website which was the most popular white supremacist website it was founded by don black another guy he was another guy that mason knew who had been a nazi since the early 70s and you know so they were like oh the old people need to get out of the way so there was a limited limited number of like mentoring and stuff and mason is clearly by far the most important figure in in this it's interesting how that worked out because he was definitely not the most important figure in his times and when he was young but years later it seems like that whole group was ready to hear his ideas 
he was so uninfluential that Siege ran at about seven when it closed. It, it ran at about like I think sixty six names he passed on when it closed. Wow. Mason said he never printed more than a hundred copies of an issue. That's how marginalized he was at that time. Right. The the thing was working as a Kmart security guard, needing at soup kitchens. I mean, that was how they were selling him when he first came back up. Yeah. So there's a big difference between what these guys were capable of achieving in terms of communication at the time and what they're capable of achieving now. It seems like the internet has really helped these guys quite a bit when it comes to being able to network, being able to link up with other folks. And they were some of the first people to really get online and get organized through guys like Louis Beam, who set up things like Liberty Net. Do you see them having kind of a significant head start on that technology when this came up? Oh, yeah. I mean, they really showed how you could use both social media and like unusual marginal platforms like 4chan as political organizing tools, you know, to launch projects from, to interject talking points. They used to do that very successfully in the Trump administration and during the campaign. They are with the internet, with BBSs, and then um, the web. They were early adapters. Right. I think the first white supremacist website was started in 1983 uh, by a guy who had been a former member of Hitler Youth. Hmm. They're always looking for a niche to, to get their claws in, and they'll use almost anything. So, yeah, but they really did pioneer a lot of this stuff, and they really, and now that they're, you know, they were, the deplatforming from the major platforms really hurt them from Facebook and what was Twitter and such. But, you know, what happened is that there just became a profusion of platforms, right? Especially for younger people, like, I can't even keep up with it. You know, when yeah. they uh, started using Discord, that was a gaming that was for right. gamers, you know, and now they're on all kinds of streaming platforms that the only reason I hear about them is when I hear that they've developed big audiences on them. So yeah, they've been very successful using this stuff. They are, I think for political groups, they are some of the, the leaders in this, the most forward thinking or using or, or forward tactical, tactically forward groups, you know, political factions in this. Shifting gears a little bit, you posted an essay on your Patreon today, and everybody should go subscribe to Spencer's Patreon because it's awesome, and he's got some great ideas on there. Today's essay was called, What Does It Mean to Not Question the Actions of an Oppressed Group? And that's mm -hmm. a phrase we definitely hear a lot, especially lately. So could you elaborate a little bit on this and how it usually ends up playing out in practice when this phrase comes up? Sure. I, I'm very critical of a lot of parts of the left, which is one reason I'm more of an obscure writer than not, is I think a lot of my audience is on the left, and then a lot of them don't like all the things I say. <laughs> but, you know, I, I come out of like an older, you know, I come out of the anarchist and anarcho-punk scene, even though I feel like my politics have moved beyond a lot of that. But, you know, I, what I learned from that was both a, a pretty thoroughgoing anti-nationalism, but also a wanting to have a, a means and ends connection for the future that we want. And for me, that's like a cosmopolitan future that is anti-capitalist, but is not like reductionist in that, that takes, you know, oppression seriously by identity and doesn't reduce it to some kind of economic base. But in doing that also, and this used to be limited to a lot of like tanky groups right? when they were the dominant groups, like really up until the Soviet Union collapse, but really even continuing till, till about 1999 with the protests against the World Trade Organization, which just is the 24th anniversary of it <laughs> um, yesterday, actually. It's been that long. I was there at, I'm definitely one of the few people who was at the WTO in New York City on 9-11 and at Charlottesville. Wow. Nice work. Yeah, life gets weird, right? I grew up in a boring small town, and I'm like, my life has gotten really weird over the years. <laughs> and I know about their positionist groups because I encountered them in Russia in the late 90s when the National Bolsheviks were there, which was a group that Alexander Dugin was part of. Right, right. Eddie Baby Lomonov. And Eddie Baby Lomonov, I mean, there's all kinds of weird connections in the cultural scene, was published by Matt Taby and Mark Ames had a magazine called The Exile, and they had a column by Lomonov. So, I mean, this is all this like red brownie kind of stuff. But back to what I'm saying is like, I really was taken aback when a lot of, there was a lot of support for nationalists, racial nationalist groups and Islamist groups flooded into the, the non-tanky scene in the aughts. Um, this really picked up. I mean, there was some sympathy for Al-Qaeda. A lot of people said some stupid things about 9-11. But, you know, really uh, after, and not just with the second Antifada, but after Hamas became the dominant, you know, radical Palestinian group there, uh, and the war with Hezbollah, 
with Israel, there really became a shift amongst we'll call them decentralized radicals, anarchists, but others into a a position supporting the stuff into positions that used to only be tanky positions into a kind of you know campism and to anyone who who opposes America is good under the rubric of anti-imperialism right. to a fairly full-throated support of black nationalists which you didn't see before and so I've always not I'm not on board with that I mean whatever people's arguments for it they're not they're not my politics we really need to to stress and ends and means kind of politic. We need to support groups that have a cosmopolitan vision, but are on the left. Uh, I'm very interested in projects like the one in, in Rojava in northern Syria, where they really do are trying to have a, a multi-ethnic bottom-up kind of left-wing project. But it's, as this goes on, I mean, there's some really manipulative people, if you ask me, and they're they're fine with war crimes. I mean, in particular, we saw there's a lot of people on the left, a lot of them, including anarchists, who are very into the 107 massacre by Hamas. Of, right. You know, largely Israeli civilians. I mean, these are unarmed civilians. You know, I think most people have no problem with they broke out of Gaza and attacked military bases and such, you know, fair play, but they massacred and they took hostages. These are war crimes. And people came back and justified this by saying you can't question, you know, what oppressed people do. And I, I think this is a duplicitous argument. It's anti-intellectual. Like, if that's your position, then why do anything but support anything a group does? It's also like, it means you don't know anything about, about a group's struggle. I mean, all kinds of identity groups have many different beliefs in them and many different factions in them. And they know the differences. Palestinians are very aware of their, the many different kinds of political groups that exist amongst the Palestinian liberation or nationalist movement, whatever you want to call it. Right. And outsiders can get a really weird idea. And it shows like a lack of engagement and understanding of these issues. So, for example, Native Americans, people are always shocked when I say this. And this is a statistic I read in the Native American press. 40% of Native Americans voted for Trump. Wow. When you say you're in solidarity with Native Americans, who exactly are you in solidarity with? Yeah. I mean, in reality, what it means is that there's a small number of decolonization Native people that interact with the radical left scene or part of it. And that's fine, but like you should say that. That's actually what's said in the famous essay, um, Accomplices Not Allies, which came out of some collaborations in Arizona. But like, who is it? And, you know, people just say this. And so they say you can't question what they do, but who is it that you're not questioning? So like I I wrote in this essay, and if you want to read my Patreon, you can uh, sign up now for free for a week and see what's on there. And of course, as as low as $2 a a month, uh, cost of a cup of coffee, you can support my work. Buy this man a cup of coffee. Seriously. Buy, buy me a cup of coffee. $5, it's like a beer. $10, like a burrito. I mean, just mm-hmm. that much. How often do you buy somebody a beer? Right. You know, it's invoked, this idea is invoked when a group's supporters recoil from the actions of the group. And probably for good reason that they're recoiling. If these are unethical actions, if these are illegal actions, if these are things that are just beyond your own politics. And um, like I said, I mean, if that's your if, if that's your jam, man, if you think anyone who hates the U.S. is fine and anything they do, anything goes, like fair play in your part, you're consistent. But if you actually want to support a certain kind of politic, then you really need not to be misled by these things and you need not to be silenced by these things. And I want to say this is, it's so funny. It's a general proposition because I had someone contact me who was Jewish and who read it as uh, people in their community trying to force them to support Israel, hmm. right? Because they're like, no, you have to support what Israel does in Gaza. You have no right to question it. You know, you need to go all these pro-Israel rallies and stuff. So it's kind of funny. I mean, it's a general principle. So you also mentioned in the idea of blank checks. And it seems like we're we're seeing that, like you just mentioned in both sides of the Israel-Palestinian conflict right now, where mm-hmm. each side's supporters are completely willing to look the other way at the horrible excesses that their side has committed at this point. Absolutely. At what point do you think people are finally going to say, this is too far? Because I thought that point was, you know, a month ago, maybe after ten seven. you know, I thought maybe that was where some people were going to get off the train. And it seems like instead it just kind of got worse. Well, I mean, I do want to say first, it's there's not just two sides. There's all kinds of people, and there's loud voices on the like, you know, anything you do to kill Israelis are cool, or anything you do to kill Palestinians are cool. And those are only some people. There's a lot of people who have a much more guarded view, or even sort of in the center of that. So let's let's not think that all you know pro-Israel or pro-Palestine people are like this because right. they're not. What's the limit of the of the check? Um, I think for some people there's not. I mean, we saw on ten seven for a lot of people, a lot of uh, Palestine activists, that was not beyond what they could cash. Wow, you know, and some of them thought it was distasteful but understandable, and some of them were were full throated, super excited by it. I think 
one professor said it was like waking up and drinking a bunch of espresso. I don't know, clearly more than that for some people. For others, you know, there's a lot of people marching out there who like, I'm not, I don't agree with what happened, but like, I do disagree with what's happening in Gaza, or I do disagree with Americans backing the Israel to, you know, supplying munitions and stuff for what's happening. So right. there is, a, let's be clear, there's a range of thought, and I am criticizing people on the, the more extreme end of it. But I think for some people, you know, obviously if Tel Aviv got nuked, they'd have a little party or a big party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for some, you know, uh, more extreme Zionists, you know, if they knew Gaza, they would have a big party. So I'm not sure there are limits for some people. That just strikes me as just, wow, thinking about that, the idea that there's... But it's a return. I mean, the thing is, we've always seen this on the left. People forget. I mean, Stalin killed 20 million people, and boy, did he have a bunch of supporters. I mean, there were like mm-hmm. tens of thousands of people in the American Party, in the French PCF. They were one of, they would get a quarter of the vote in France and the national election. So. There was no shortage of people doing this. When I was much younger, the Shining Path was still a going thing, and they killed about 30,000 people in this both sides dirty war. So there's always been these people on the left. There always been people. It's And it's easier when things are far away. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's so much easier when things are far away, and you're not going to be involved in it. I mean, comparatively, few people ever get killed in political clashes in the United States. So you can always things oh things look better far away and some people are heartless and it's just an abstraction to them wow yeah and it really seems like this one has kind of come home for a lot of people i don't ever really recall seeing this much activity around almost anything else that's gone down you know i'm 48 so my view is somewhat limited on this but it definitely seems like for my entire lifetime this has been kind of the big defining issue where people are going to have these conversations And that brings me to a piece that you wrote a few years ago called Looking Left at Anti-Semitism, which seems absolutely clairvoyant now. (laughs) And it seems like this conflict has brought some of the ideas that you wrote about to the surface in a way that has really forced that conversation that people didn't want to have at the time that you wrote it, because now (laughs) there's really no choice. It's become very clear that there's a whole lot of anti-Semitism on the left that people just simply didn't want to talk about, but now they can't avoid it. Do you think this mm-hmm. is where we get to finally have that debate? No. So let me see. I wrote that essay in 2019, really based on like 15 years of experience um, and frustration about even trying to get Holocaust deniers kicked out of explicitly left-wing spaces. And there being a huge pushback about that or, or people just refusing to do it. It will actually, this book will actually be published, talk about weird timing in a year on a, a press in Britain with some other essays I wrote. And I revised that essay, although you can Google it. It is online. We'll put it in the show notes. I think it's totally worth reading. So yeah, we're going to link that. I've actually never promoted that essay on social media because I have not wanted to deal with the uh, immense blowback. It does get, I know it gets passed around. I see it being promoted by people on Twitter or Reddit or, or, or whatever. And that was sort of my point. It's funny that it's coming out in a year, but like all the issues I raise, you'll see now. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see all of them because of the same issues that have been existing in the left. And, you know, some of them is like, why do you not care about conspiracy theories? Why do you allow stuff you would never allow for any other group? You know, and only at the end do I really uh, I talk about red brown movements. Uh, I talk about critiques of, of finance capital. And only in the end do I get into some of the um, Israel stuff. And it's not that I'm not, you know, very sympathetic to Palestinians. Like I was in uh, New York on 9-11. I cannot imagine that was like one attack and then it was over. I, I cannot imagine what it means to be in a city where this is like a constant thing and you don't know when it's going to end. But on the other hand, I think people, the way people talk about Israel is it's not even always anti-Semitic. to me. A lot of it just doesn't make any sense. You know, when I, when I sat down and read the history of Zionism and how Israel was formed and stuff, I was like, this to me doesn't sound like anything the way that people talk about it. Is that anti-Semitic? I don't know. Is that wrong to me? I, I do. I do think it's wrong. I think people just don't want to, ha- it's such a complex situation and everybody looks so bad Right. People turn it into this intense black and white thing. It's almost like an attempt not to deal with the complexity. And then it becomes a symbol for everybody, like this this battle between good and evil. And and it's funny, for some people, Israel's the good and the Palestinians are evil. And for other people, the Palestinians are good and the Israelis are evil. And so it has this larger than life, a place in our consciousness and the world consciousness, and it functions in other ways. And you see this, how it's such a popular topic on the left, when in reality, Hamas who are theocratic Islamists battling, you know, the IDF, uh, Israel's controlled by a far, the far right, you know, character Netanyahu, 
are in some sense a far right versus far right conflict, right? Right. It's an odd conflict for the Western left to be so involved in because, and this is some of the, the the problems I try to get at. On one hand, it is right to intervene on the side of the Palestinians. On the other hand, it's very strange that the left chooses this as such a central issue. And both are true at the same time. And right. this is part of when we get down to that issue. And again, in my essay, this is only part of it. It really does become quite complex while the dialogue about it is so extreme at the same time. Right. Yeah. And that is definitely a weird thing. I want to pick that up because Hamas is nobody's idea of a leftist group. They just aren't. No. They are these fanatical Islamist terrorists. And the idea that somehow people are prepared to overlook a lot of that in their their support for these guys, it just it strikes me as insane. We get that people are being oppressed here. We get that this is a really horrible government that's running things in Israel right now. But these don't seem like the guys you want to put your stock into fixing that. It's strange. It's a kind of campism, too. It's it's a kind of, as a subset of, the, of anti-imperialism, a kind of pro-Islamism, a return of pro-Islamism that, again, I think we saw on the left starting in the mid-aughts. But yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of strange things about it. I do want to emphasize again, because somebody's going to listen to this and, and go fanatic. Like, I, I'm not saying people shouldn't protest against what's going on. I'm not saying people shouldn't be involved in Palestine activism. I am saying I don't trust anyone who doesn't explicitly denounce anti-Semitism and explicitly denounce 10-7. I, I would never right. go to a demonstration that this kind of group organized. And so everyone has it. We all, you know, the Likud, the Netanyahu's party has committed war crimes. Hamas has committed war crimes. Has Israel committed more? Yes, they have. But that doesn't, it's not, again, not either or. You can't just let people off the hook. So um, right. I do want to say I'm not saying you know, I'm not saying all Palestine activism is either anti-Semitic or wrong, but I, I feel like there are a lot of people engaged in it that I am like taken aback by and I won't work with them. Yeah, no, totally understandable because those are the kind of people that end up on the wrong side of all of this kind of stuff eventually. If you're prepared to overlook that kind of thing, it's just not. Yeah, it's sort of like anti-Semitism. And I tell people this, like once someone has like really adopts anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, like they're going to adopt all kinds of other crazy bullshit too. They're going to, mm -hmm. yeah, they're going to end up being TERFs. They're going to end up as anti-vaxxers. Uh, there's a certain, I don't say his name, a washed up folk singer. And this is exactly what's happened. <laughs> he's, he's long had these, you know, who, who portrays me in some like, you know, way strangely, exactly like anti-Semites portray me. I've been the subject of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories for, for over a dozen years now. And, you know, I'm like the puppet master behind all of these things, but, um, you know, it comes out that he's anti-trans and he, you know, he's, he's connected. <laughs> he like is working with him playing events for the, uh, Caleb Maupin. Who's this? Oh, like, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This deep red Brown figure. So like I said, where anti-Semitism goes uh, or where you see it, all kinds of other shit politics will follow. So even if you don't care about that issue, even if you think it's a red herring about Israel right. or something like you need to pay attention when someone is by, by other leftists accused of this and seems to be guilty. And, you know, let's say you don't care about that issue. You need to look at that person's other politics. Right. Because it's really the gateway drug to a lot of other bad shit that people get into. They they get into this. And like you said, next thing you know, they're anti-vax. Next thing you know, they're into any number of other terrible ideas mm -hmm. but it always seems to start with anti-semitic the jews run the world kind of stuff it starts with it or somehow that's it, it get that gets mixed in and becomes very visible a lot of anti-woke stuff is now following this you're starting to see all kinds of right right-wing talking points oh, yeah. and people become vehicles for them even your like somewhat more mainstream right-wingers guys like charlie kirk are now starting to talk about jewish finance capital and stuff and it's like okay we're we're getting down the rabbit hole really fast here yeah, yeah. I'm. I mean, that's we've seen. You know, because of the 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 um, level of impact of the far right into the Republican Party. You know, even, right. even with the alt right having faded, they helped inspire this, and their the large presence of this of, of national officials like Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, that that becomes a conduit for these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in, encoded or some kind of form or a representational, where it's like a single person doing it, like Soros or something, and not right. like the Jews. Yeah, it bleeds over into everything. It's established it on such a large scale in the United States that we really haven't seen since maybe the anti-communist days, you know, in the 50s of, um, you know, Eugene McCarthy, not Eugene, right. 
Um, uh, no, 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 no. Um, uh, uh, no Joe McCarthy. Was, Joe. Joe McCarthy. I always confuse the two. Ian <laughs> McCarthy was a left wing uh, candidate in 1948. Um, wait, did I get that right? Or no, no, Wallace? 68. 60. Oh, 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 oh I'm confusing yeah. with Wallace now. I'm so bad. My brain. <laughs> you have some rage and your brain turns to goo, especially oh, yeah. about names. It's never good with names. No, no. Um, totally yeah, but it's, it's so strange. I mean, we, we forget now how. Even how in 2016, like things that go on now, we don't blink that were shocking in 2016. Right. You know, and that was, I think, what, at least with me personally, what kind of woke me up was seeing some of these ideas that I hadn't even heard in years. You know, I, like you, came out of more of a punk rock background. I'm from a town called Spokane, Washington, and we had a group called the Aryan Nations right next door. And they used Mm -hmm. to come over and start shit at shows frequently, all the time. So that was kind of where I grew up in terms of seeing what these guys were all about. And, you know, we had some kids from my high school that ended up getting recruited by that group. So, you know, you kind of think it's done. You kind of think it's not as much of an issue, but then you start to hear these ideas coming out of more mainstream GOP people. And you find yourself thinking like, wait a second, this was all like the kind of stuff they didn't talk about on anything other than Stormfront a few years ago. And now we've got these guys that are more mainstream Republicans that are saying these same kinds of things. And you're right. It was shocking then, but it seems like it's gotten a whole lot less shocking to people on a mainstream level ever since. Yeah. I mean, the great replacement theory, you hear it commonly now. I mean, in 16, this was still an openly recognizable white supremacist talking Mm -hmm. point, right? This is what Elon Musk, I think uh, approved a tweet of, or was positive. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, he did. And, you know, something Tucker Carlson has brought up on a show any number of times. Tucker is big, big proponent of this. They love Tucker because he says the kind of things and well, used to say the kind of things in front of a whole lot of people that you couldn't say on, you know, a white supremacist podcast in front of anybody. Right. But a lot of people thought, I mean, that was when, when people like, oh, Trump, there was one article, I think in Salon or something, when Trump announced his candidacy and they're like, we're going to cover this in the humor section. And, uh-huh. and it's like, yeah, but Trump is saying what people are thinking, Yeah, you know? I mean, maybe they do say now, but they didn't <laughs> want to say out loud. He talked to a bunch of people in a way that they'd never had anyone talk to them before on a national mm-hmm. level. They had been feeding off of guys like Rush Limbaugh Absolutely. for a number of years. They had been getting that red meat, but then there was a disconnect between guys like Limbaugh and these Republican politicians who were kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now lower taxes. Right. Right. But now you've got a Donald Trump who's basically saying the kind of things on the campaign trail that guys like Limbaugh said on the radio for years, like we're going to build a wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> these people mm-hmm. are like, hell yes, this is mm-hmm. what we've been waiting to hear. Mm-hmm. So I really think that at least part of the reason why some of these people are so fanatic for Trump was because He's the guy who said for a number of years what they had been wanting one of these guys to say to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's the one who told them the truth after all of that. And now you're seeing this split in the Republican Party where you've got this whole second party that's come up around Trump and they're going to end up seizing the means of power, I think. I think at some point the MAGA side of this is going to end up running out the last of the Mitch McConnells and the Mitt Romneys and these other guys. And what you're going to end up having is this just crazy fanatical America first faction just taking power. It's hard to tell. I mean, the funny thing is, is like DeSantis is like, I think if he was president would be the the most effective far right kind of guy. And Mm -hmm. he's not quite in this camp. You know what I mean? Obviously he's, he's running against Trump. And the number of electeds who are in this camp are really quite small, but they, you know, it's like what four, six people and what was tried as the America First Caucus, you know, and rep. Right. But they're able to influence the rest of the party. The people who before were more like neoliberals or something, are like lower taxes, um, you know, more jails. But they're able, it's the influence on the rest of them. I don't know how much this is the really crazy thing in the U.S., as um, Chipperley and Matthew Lyons point out in their, their book, uh, Right Wing Populism in America. It's from 2000, but it's a book that influenced me a lot. Chip was one of the major writers about the far right during this down period in the 90s and aughts, starting in the 80s. He actually came out of the, the sort of countercultural scene. He used to be a High Times writer. Uh. But they talk about how historically in America, the, the far right worked in a boom and bust cycle. You know, like the Klan was very popular in the 20s and then it went away. And then like, you know, like anti-communism, this crazy anti-communism was very popular around McCarthy and then went away, the Birch Society. And, you know, at first, 
you know, the militia movement was very popular in the nineties and then went away. Um, and so at first I was like, oh, well, this is, seems to be following the cycle. There'll be Trump and, and it'll go away. But even after Biden beat him, the far right, I had told a journalist this because he sort of seemed like he just discovered the far right. And I was like, look, their activism and their size has remained pretty steady in my view after Trump left. Yeah. Look, we all were thinking or hoping, hoping, hoping that it would deflate. Maybe we no longer so, you know, so thinking because of the original election, but hoping it would deflate the whole thing. And it hasn't. It built a big base. Yeah. But if you look at Europe, for example, the far right has established a, you know, permanent base in most of the countries, in the Western countries, in the East, it's much stronger, obviously. You know, these parties often get 20% of the vote. I think that's like a kind of standard average for these parties now in Western Europe. Yeah. Um, and even in the US, people are surprised at Trump, but this kind of far right had arisen in Europe again, like starting, I think, in 1999 in Austria with the Freedom Party and uh, had long established itself in Europe. So in a way, we were just like finally coming around to that. Although they have parliamentary systems, so it's easier to see smaller, you know, influences of smaller uh, sure. trends there, right? Where here the winner take all system sort of pushes. And in the old days with uh, with a high uh, capital uh, investment media with TVs and newspapers, it pushed a lot of ideas out of the mainstream. You couldn't see them, but that didn't mean they were building. And this is why the internet has allowed these ideas that wouldn't make the mainstream before, but have some following to be very visible. So this is probably an odd question to ask, but what gives you hope? going forwards? What do you see that you're optimistic about? Well, I mean, there really has been, it's not doldrums for the left. You know, the fact that we now have openly democratic socialist national representatives is not something when, you know, I'm around your age growing up, that was possible. Right. People are mobilized around different issues. And, you know, I hope that the I'm not in all issues necessarily excited by and sometimes not on board with what people on the left say, but that's probably true of any anyone in any political movement who's who's really well informed about all the, the nooks and crannies. I, I mean, I do think as much as we hear crazy stuff, and it is terrible in, in some places like Florida about trans people, like uh, trans people have also seemed to have established themselves as a permanent fixture in society. People, in fact, are angry about trans people because they're so visible, right? Right. And it is so established. And I don't think that's, it may be beaten back in some places, but that's not going to be beaten back in general. Like, I don't, I don't think it can be. And so, I mean, I think that's, that's a good thing. I don't know, you know, societies ebb and flow between progressive and reactionary periods. I mean, we're, the, the US is very split. I mean, this is the, the blue red map. And I know people have talked about it a long time, but like, yeah, there's a lot of people on the far right, but there's a lot of people who reject all that stuff too. You know, I'm Gen X and you know, when I go to leftist leftist meetings and stuff, I'm always the oldest or youngest person there. Mm-hmm. Always. Uh, unless some anarchist stuff, right, or, or something, and then then there's a bunch of people this age. And it's because <laughs> at the time, you know, I came of age in the in the ninety, early nineties, there wasn't a lot of people politicized on the left. And that's just not the case now. Younger people, there's actually many more younger people. So it's not a bad time for the left in a way. So I don't know, you know. The struggle always continues or, or whatever. You never reconcile all the contradictions in a society. And I, um, I don't think this is a horrible time to be alive in America. You know, if you're a, a, a racial minority or you know, a sexual minority or, or whatever it is. And there's a lot of people who are willing to struggle with you and you have a lot of support from people who don't even belong to your identity. And there's a, a big wave finally of new union organizing. This has been many decades since this is happening. Oh, yeah. People openly talk about capitalism now and reining it in. And that just wasn't done really openly no. for many decades, like since the new left people kind of faded out. So, And I think to some extent, as like a fellow Gen X person, we saw like the absolute low point of the union movement. Mm-hmm. You know, we were around for Reagan firing the air traffic controllers. We saw union membership drop and mm-hmm. it's coincided with a drop in living standards to a large extent. And I think seeing all the union wins in the last couple of years and having a president for whatever else you think of him, I think is pretty solidly Mm pro-labor. It Mm -hmm. really makes me kind of optimistic as well that maybe this is the time where we start to gain some of that back and we can actually start getting to the point where 
worker rights get respected and collective bargaining becomes a thing that people have come to expect again as part mm-hmm. of their work experience. In the first way, when unions kind of became fully legalized under FDR, and I think especially after the war, there became a wave of unionization where it reached 50% or more in the U.S. and everywhere was getting unionized. It was sort of backed by the government. But, you know, like retail stores and restaurants and all kinds of stuff. And this, of course, went away to a core of government workers and heavy industry and largely because of legacy stuff and down to 10%. And it was ridiculous to talk about like unionizing McDonald's or something. Now it makes a lot of sense. You know, the fight for 15 used to be seen as some outrageous socialist thing and and it's been implemented in a lot of places. So yeah, I mean, it's great that there's pushback. It's great that the unions have finally overcome the doldrums of the nineties and stuff, right? Where they didn't know how to organize. And these were very, they were still, these were very fringe industries that people poo-pooed them in organizing. And now it's, it's accepted, although it's probably accepted more because there's so many more jobs like this. And, and, you know, there's not these of the Keynesian era with these like permanent jobs with high wages and a big middle class. So many people just aren't middle class, won't be middle class. These are just the jobs they have. And a lot more people, this is overlooked, I think, a lot more people go to college now than ever. Right. And this includes people who aren't white, like the college going rates have increased a lot. And in our country, it's not true in all times. For example, peasant revolts used to be a big deal, you know, in the in the 20th, 19th century. Um, a lot of educated people, you need to be kind of savvy about stuff to be politically effective, active and effective, you know, these days. And you have just so many more college educated people. It gives people these tools to do this, even as they're shuffled into these shitty jobs with, you know, high rent and uh, high student loans. So you know, the attempt to go to college to overcome these things used to not be common to go to college until the, the 60s, really, right. in the United States. Um, you're giving people the tools to, you know, fight back against the same society that's sort of digging you into, like for student loans and stuff. So you, I think you have a lot of people going like, no, we can unionize this. We are in shitty jobs. We can't change our position. Mm-hmm. We know we can change the position through organized collective action. They don't have that perception that people our age and a little older had of like, well, maybe the union movement's time is over and it's not needed anymore. Mm -hmm. They grew up in an environment where things were not so great in a lot of cases. And they're looking at it and saying, you know, there was this thing that we used to do. Yeah. There's a lot of like, and I sort of see it more clearly now. And I mean, it was seen as a small thing, but it did kind of catch some of the zeitgeist of the generation, like the slacker thing. You know, and it was just like, it, there's no really point of changing. You're not really going to be able to change stuff. Even radicalism, you, there's like a kind of dropping out and you could do it too, because the rent was really cheap. And for me, everything revolves around cheap rent. Right. And there were more social, you know, social benefits available, but there was a kind of um, resignation about stuff, e- even amongst even amongst radicals, there was still like, a, oh, we're going to sort of drop out and we're against the system, but we don't think we're actually going to get anywhere that right and i think that's really very different that's a generational attitude and it's not held by you know zoomers and certainly not zoomers but even not by a lot of millennials so right you know and our you know gen x was actually i didn't realize this until recently numerically getting to a gen x podcast here numerically it's much (laughs) smaller than both millennials and baby boomers oh yeah so the number of people who are gen x just on that level are very small so even if you're talking about representation in a political group well, there would have to be less for Gen X if it was proportional, right? With right. 10% of every generation. There just aren't as many people. No, there aren't. And that's always been kind of the the big sticking point for a lot of this stuff is that there just there weren't as many. Mm-hmm. It, w- it was a baby bust. And as a result, you're not going to see as much of this kind of stuff getting adopted until the bigger generation came along and started kind of ramming it through, as it were. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of political and cultural strategies developed under Gen X were predicated on cheap rent. <laughs> yes. And predicated on cheap uh, schooling. And that just doesn't exist anymore, which, you know, almost everyone I know who's around my age is struggling. There are very few people who actually have done well. And I mean, well, I mean, like solidly middle class. I don't mean rich. Right. And I didn't come from some elite. I came from a middle class family, but like, you know, I went to public schools and, you know, and everyone I went to school with, they're not doing great. They're all struggling. And some of that is people didn't, you know, were like, oh, situation will continue as it is. Right. We can always make rent and then we can do these other things. And that just isn't, you know, that kind of more lackadaisical approach to work isn't, isn't feasible now. Yeah. You know, I tell people, young people, like, what, I, what should I do? I'm like, become a plumber. 
Like, <laughs> I'm like, get us. The first thing you should do is get a high paying manual labor skill. Yeah. Go learn a trade. Go become a fucking electrician. Like, oh, there's yeah. a huge group of electricians. They get paid a massive amount of money mm-hmm. and then do your work on the side. But like, don't be scrambling all the time to pay rent. The more you do that, I have to do this all the time. The less work I produce, you know? Right. Right. This is how it is. And that wasn't always the case, but it is now. We're in that same boat. It was in the 60s. People were like, oh, yeah, we didn't even have to pay. Worry about paying rent. We paid $75 a, a week or something. I could work one. You know, in San Francisco, in the in the new left period, people were like, yeah, I work one day a week or, or one one week a month or something. I covered the rent. Like it was, And people like owned places or whatever and just gave radicals uh, places to stay for free because they could. Who had, who had just regular middle class jobs could fund like a whole house. And that floated a lot of stuff. If you're spending all of your time working, even if you're fully politicized to know what you're doing, you can only spend so much time and energy doing these other things. Right. So, you know, you've been at this for a really long time and you've totally realized we've talked about it, about this kind of activism being a never ending marathon. You're just going to keep running and you've probably Mm -hmm. seen plenty of people completely burn out. How do you avoid that? What do you do to unplug and avoid that level of burnout yourself? (laughs) you know the best thing i ever heard was it's funny an ex-girlfriend told me this that someone told her this the person was you know you're a young activist they jump from whatever's the hot issue to the hot issue so you're union organizer today you're palestine activist tomorrow you're whatever's going to come next after that black lives matter you know you're you're hopping right and that's fine as you're learning stuff but someone her, her story is someone older radical told hers and they were like, look, find something you're really interested in and concentrate on that. That will keep you involved. Hmm. Cause you can't, especially as you get older, you can't hop everything and you don't want to. And then you're with, there are a lot of people who are younger. And you know, if you do this work, you realize if you're really going to do some work, there are only so many issues you can work on. Right. Like usually it's one main issue and maybe two other issues. And that's not working a lot of a day job. You know, so for me, that's like anti-fascism and then less Rojava solidarity work and uh, prisoner work. But I can't do anything else. Like, I could spend much more time doing anti-fascist stuff if I had more more capacity to do it. That's right. actually a little terrible about absorbing people's lives because you're actually becoming totally involved in a separate political movement in a sense, right? Right. You know, there's only so many things you can do. Pick the things that are meaningful to you. That will keep you involved. And work with people that you trust and you like. You know, you get screwed over. There's, I mean, humans suck, okay? But I think political, there's always going to be liars and cheats and manipulators and backstabbers. But I think there's a particularly large number of them in political movements. And so you got to make sure, you got to be able to know how to handle that. You got to learn how to handle factional infighting. And you got to work with people that you like enough, whatever that is. Some people are very picky. They need to work with people of the same identity. If you need to do that, go figure out how to do that. You know, figure out what it is that makes you comfortable enough. You do want to be challenged some because that helps you learn and grow. But do the things that you have some fulfillment in. Right. That will keep you involved. My wisdom, uh, the message to the message <laughs> to the young people. <laughs> no, I always ask because, like, you know, you you see that with people, especially these days, people burn out a lot. It's a really frustrating milieu to be in. Very little reward, very little anything besides just wake up the next day and go again. You see this on the far right, too. Think of all the alt-right people in 16, 18. You haven't heard their name in a long time. Like, where's Jason Kessler now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's totally true. These guys, they did the same thing. They expected to take over. They didn't have that long war perspective, I think. They were kind of like, this is going to be it. And next thing you know, unless they are, you know, Jack Posobiec and getting paid to do it. Mm-hmm, that changes. Right. You know, James Mason's newsletters are kind of fascinating. And some of this stuff is in siege because a lot of it is a reflection on his like 15, 20 years of activism in the neo-Nazi scene. A lot of these things are just, they're, they're good for everything. He talks about the 18 month syndrome of people who become involved as neo-Nazis and they become fanatically involved for a period of time and they burn out. Like there's a lot of the same dynamics. He talks about how do you deal with you know, wing nuts and backstabbers and like, you know, how, how do you remain involved and what are your ideals versus practical stuff? Like a lot of this stuff, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a human dynamic, right? People get cut up. Oh, the left is this or that, but we're talking about leftists are humans and we're talking about human dynamics. So, um, 
yeah, you, it's funny. I've learned some things from the reflections of neo-Nazis. It's, it's true. Well, you can't not to some extent because they're dealing again with a lot of human problems. Yeah. They have to figure this stuff out in the same way that everybody has to sort of figure it out. And you see that they do the same thing. You take a guy like Louis Beam, who wrote the Leaderless Resistance Manifesto, which he, he won't tell you it was cribbed from a lot of communist ideas and groups at the time, but it's mm -hmm. very clear. You read this and you're like, hey, this is this is Ho Chi Minh. This is kind of very basic guerrilla theory here. And it's the same thing. People take knowledge where they can find it. Sometimes that's a really bad place, but at the same time, that's how the world works. Yeah, well, some people, a lot of people in the fire, they may be despicable people. Actually, sometimes they're nice people to your face. I mean, mm -hmm. this is kind of funny. They may have despicable politics, but that doesn't mean they're not smart or observant people. It doesn't mean they're not observant about human nature. And right. So I think Beam does acknowledge that he took some of this stuff from a, a uh, from an American army person, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. It was a, a Colonel Amos, mm -hmm. I think it was, that he was a fan of. Louis Beam was one of those guys who was really good at staying in the background. He was mm -hmm. not the guy who had to be up front, which kind of was part of the reason I think he was as effective as he was for so long, mm -hmm. being just right next to the shit that was happening. Not close mm -hmm. enough that you could arrest him for it, but close enough that, you know, he had to have known about it. You know, another guy who I, I just thought of this as you're talking about it, traveled the very same path as Mike Vanderbaugh, who's passed away, but was the founder or co-founder of the Three Percenters. Again, a hyper-decentralized group. Vanderbaugh, at one point in his blog, says he was a member of a Maoist group in the 60s or 70s. Surprising. Not really. And yeah, and then you're like, oh, I can totally feel that. I can feel mm -hmm. that in your work. Right. Here's another like weird thing. The, the far right does crib from the left a lot because the left is very innovative. The whole idea of white separatism and the white ethnostate and stuff, this stuff all got influenced by 1960s left-wing revolutionary nationalist movements of black nationalist groups and anti-colonial groups. And then people, especially along the Benoist of the French New Right, started looking at this and being like, oh, they want separate revolution the nationalists they're revolution they say they're communists but whatever look at them they're revol they're nationalists and they're revolutionaries mm -hmm. against the global capitalist system we can be that too we can be that in alliance with us we don't need the old white supremacy where we're going to conquer the world Th this has burned its way out hitler burned his way out he was he was an expansionist like we just need to keep what we have just like they do and so you'll even see these maps in the 70s and 80s. If you look at 70s um, new left, you know, nationalists, racial national stuff, POC national stuff, they make these maps of the U.S. broken up into different racial enclaves. Right. And then you'll see similar maps the white supremacists made, but with a white area in it. So I mean, <laughs> they literally adopted, they were influenced by these ideas from the left. So there's a flow. The left doesn't get as influenced at all by the far right, but there is a lot of adaptation of left-wing ideas and then reworking into the far right. Definitely. I mean, you'll see Metzger talk a lot about like global capital. I mean, he sounds like a leftist. He's at their position. Some of this stuff, monopoly capital and all kinds of things, you know, it's totally. like, oh, the workers really need these, these right wing politicians are sellouts. You know, they, they say this stuff, but they don't really stand up. They don't stand up for the workers. They're really in bed with capitalists. Like you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Metzger, if you didn't know who he was, could sound like a real socialist a lot of the time. If you didn't know about his other politics, you could be like, wow, this guy's onto something. And, uh, wait a minute. Yeah. And Metzger <laughs> actually drew, I think at least two former leftists became staff members. Um, John or Gary, he's both named Jewel, used to be a prominent figure in the industrial workers of the world, became a staff writer for War, his newspaper. And um, uh, Wyatt Kaldenberg, uh, I think, used to be a Trotskyist and also became like uh, one of the main people running the newspaper. Kaldenberg's still around. So he was he was drawing ex-leftists who liked these parts of his ideas, but were racists. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing how that goes. You get these mm -hmm. guys that at one point were trots or maoists and all of a sudden they've shifted but not really and the left occasionally draws former white supremacists which is really a, t a tense subject but there are some mm -hmm. you know and some people the ones i met largely were like that when they were teenagers or something and then went through a long period and then later became leftists so that does actually happen too but it's very sensitive yeah there's a lot of you know, hoops that kind of need to get jumped through. And yes. there's a pretty high standard of proof for people because so often it's just been a hustle. Oh yeah. These guys will come along and they'll say that I've reformed. And next thing you know, nope, sorry. 
Not at all. But some people are just hoppers. They just move from one. I call them hoppers, just from mm-hmm. one ideology to another, and just like they're just you know chameleons, and they may even legitimately act like leftists. But it's really weird, and there'll be something else tomorrow, right? Right. So, how can people support you in the work that you're doing? Well, um, I think at this point, you can read my read my articles and pass them around. I mean, always always like that. I have two books coming out. They're not available for pre order yet. But one of them is called uh, Neo-Nazi Terrorism and Countercultural Fascism, The Origins and Afterlife of James Mason's Siege. Uh, that'll be out in May on Routledge. And out in, I think, November 2024, we'll be looking left at anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism on the left, right, and in between in the United States. That'll be out on No Passeran in Britain. Okay. Um, I have a Patreon. You can follow me on Twitter. God, I'm on everything now as everything's <laughs> blowing up. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Blue Sky. I'm on Mastodon. I have a, a mailing list that comes out, you know, an email list. I encourage people to sign up to. All this stuff is on the front of my website, which is spencersunshine.com. Although I heard my now, now tiny letter, the mailing list is being eaten up by MailChimp and all has to be moved. Oh, God. I mean, everything's – spend all your time on social media. <laughs> Yeah, and I have a Patreon. It's, you know, like I said, two, you can start at $2 a month. You can get a free seven-day subscription if you want to look at what I want to do. It's mostly supporting my work. Uh, I'm not a high-content producer. I would be much more successful if I was. I try to do more thoughtful and more research stuff. And so, yeah, as little, you know, two bucks a month or whatever you want to give, you can read my stuff there and support my other work. I've written these books. I wrote an organizing guide called 40 Ways to Fight Fascists, Street Legal Tactics for Community Activists. Did its second edition in 2020. I'm right now when we get off the podcast, I'm helping edit the Canadian edition. I'd like to produce a third edition in the United States. So there's a lot, a lot of work I do. I mean, a lot of these essays that I write, even they get published, I don't get paid for. No. Um, I got student loans to pay off. <laughs> uh, they're, not, they're not getting paid. That's for sure. So uh, yeah, these are the, you know, follow me on social media, share my articles, sign up on Patreon, you know, Definitely. tell your friends, Spencer Sunshine. I love his stuff. You know, Good stuff. Yeah. This guy's definitely got a lot to say. You should really, really follow Spencer on all the social medias, sign up for his Patreon. It's, it's good stuff. Spencer, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate the work that you do. Keep doing it, please. We need you. Oh, thank you. This is this is very much appreciated. It's been great to be on your show. I've enjoyed having having this conversation about the old days. Indeed. Take care of yourself. Have a good rest of your day, okay? Okay, you too. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at GrizzaBJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNWPod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.